Welcome to episode 33 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Saitman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about commemorating 9-11, tensions between Greece and Turkey, the ongoing protests in Belarus, and our favorite outlets for security and defense analysis. Our Emerging Scholar segment features research on maritime defense diplomacy from Lieutenant Commander Ryan Bell, and our feature interview is with Sam Jackson, Assistant Professor in the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity at the University at Albany, and an expert on far-right extremism. At the very end, stay tuned for Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you, Steve. Uh, it's grant application season for me, so I'm struggling to finish up uh, detailed descriptions for a SHRC application I'm doing with two fantastic colleagues. Yeah, yeah. and how's teaching going for you, uh, Steve? Uh, are you becoming a fan of synchronous or asynchronous teaching? Well, yesterday was my first day of my undergraduate class, and the way we scheduled it was that the first day would be live or synchronous, and then the rest of the semester, except for the last week, would be take videos we'd be working on all summer long. And I'm feeling really good about our choice because within the first two minutes of yesterday's class, there was somebody having a conversation with somebody else that might not have been in, in the class. I don't know what was going on, whether they had a phone out or whatever, but they were saying things I've never heard in the classroom, and it caused the entire chat thread of my class to you know, have people say, mute. What is going on here? WTF? <laughs> and so on. And, and, and I was able to screenshot uh, my own picture, which has me being very, very confused. So I am a big fan of doing things taped and not live, uh, particularly for a 100-person undergraduate class. So that was my uh, day of teaching yesterday. I also met with my uh, PhD student class, and, and that went fine. But yeah, we're back in the rhythm of things. Teaching on, for me, I'll be teaching on mostly on Mondays, since I have uh, two classes on Mondays. Mm -hmm. So Tuesday, chatting with you is a, is, is a nice change of pace, hanging out with you. I must say, though, I, the stuff that we talk about is now entering my dreams. <laughs> no, I hope they're not nightmares. Not nightmares. It's just that, you know, there's been a lot of stories lately about who's going to be the next chief of defense staff. And, you know, that's something we've talked about. And so the other night, I had a dream where I was walking through a, a hotel. It was either the Chateau, Chateau Laurier or it was the Lord Elgin or Elgin. I always mispronounce it. Elgin. Uh, Lord Elgin. And I walked past a room full of fairly disgruntled officers, all with three leaves on their shoulders, as they're preparing to be interviewed to be the next chief of defense staff. So I think that might maybe I'm thinking too much about this. I know we bet on it, but I don't think the stakes are that high that it should be entering my dreams. It's funny because in, in September, those aren't the kinds of dreams that I have usually. I usually have that dream where it's the first day of class and you're coming in late or your syllabus is not ready. I think a lot of professors have these kinds of preterm uh, dreams in August or September. Yeah, I didn't have that one, but I guess it's because there are news stories about that issue. Who's going to be replacing John Vance? Because there's some concern there might be a fall election. And so there's some concern that we might not have this wrapped up before the fall election. So I think that the government of the day has now got a little bit more pressure, a little, a little fire to their feet to make a decision more quickly so they can get this wrapped up before a new election is called. Well, it seems that it's already been quite some time. Now, when did Vance 
announced that he would be stepping down. It was the summer. It was uh, the end of July. It was the yeah. end of July, beginning of August. So, you know, there's not that many candidates. You know, yeah. it shouldn't be that hard to figure out, but this government doesn't make decisions quickly. But I, I would expect a decision to be made sometime the next month because they, they want to get this done before any political shenanigans happen. I agree. And looking back on the weekend, did you do anything special? Did you commemorate 9-11 on, on Friday? Any plans? For this 9-11... You know, the last few years I've been having a competition about which 9-11 anniversary is, makes me angrier than mm. previous ones. Because one of the things about that day was that it did create a sense of unity, but it also created a bunch of policies that we're facing the, the ramifications of. So, for instance, one of the reactions the United States had to 9-11 was to create the Department of Homeland Security. And the Department of Homeland Security lately has been sort of weaponized by the Trump administration to repress the American people and to, to also deal with immigrants in ways that are very problematic. And so just as people have been saying disband police, disband ICE, the Immigration Criminal Enforcement Division, I think there's a growing movement to suggest that the assembly of all the agencies are put together to create the Department of Homeland Security should be broken apart since it hasn't really been all that functional for the past 19 years or so. So I, I, that was one of the things I was reflecting on. People were telling their 9-11 stories uh, as, as usual. And I have my 9-11 story since I was in D.C. that day. Did you mark the day in any particular way or think about it in any different ways from last year or previous years? I, I thought about it differently this year just because of COVID. 9-11 commemorations, just like the activities to, to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II are different this year. You see how the pandemic has touched really every facet of our lives. I noticed that some events were canceled, others were adapted, and others were moved online. But it's clear that smaller, socially distant and masked commemoration events just don't have the same feel and, and same impact, probably. Am I correct in, in calling that you told us your story last year on the podcast or have, have you yet to do that? I don't think I did that last year. I was in Washington, D.C. on a fellowship that put me in the Pentagon. I was on the U.S. Joint Staff on the Bosnia desk, part of the Council on Foreign Relations Fellowship that takes academics and puts them in the policy world and takes people from the policy world and puts them into academic position. And I was there that year to sort of see how the sausages get made, how does U.S. foreign and defense policy get made. And so 9-11 was the first day of my second week. And my reaction in part was, what's my third week going to start like? And so when the first building was hit, we had a, one of our Air Force officers, a colonel, came in and told us to turn on the TVs. And we turned on the TVs and we saw the first building burning and he quickly identified it as being terrorism, couldn't imagine it being anything else. And then we saw the second plane hit. And then I had a meeting at the State Department. So I went outside with two army officers who were my teammates on the Bosnia desk. And we were literally on the bridge between Washington, D.C. and the Pentagon when the plane hit the Pentagon. And so we turned around and I called up my wife and said, don't, don't worry about me, I'm okay. And she said, why should I worry about you? You're not in New York. And I told her that the Pentagon had been hit. And but I, I said, I'm going on to the State Department because the shuttle contains people who work the State Department. And so she said, okay. And so I got off the phone. And then while we're in, sitting in traffic waiting to get to the State Department, there was reports that the State Department had hit by a car bomb. And so I tried to call my wife again. But by that point in time, the cell phone nets were crowded. And then we got to the State Department and dropped off some people. And the third stop along our the shuttle's regular rotation is the old executive office building, which is where the National Security Council folks tend to hang out. And what was striking about that was that as we're approaching the White House, I saw a guy on the street corner, 
a cameraman setting up his camera, hoping to get a shot of a plane hitting the, uh, the White House. That will always be the image I have of 9-11, is that guy setting up that camera, anticipating the next attack. And then we eventually got back to the Pentagon, and the funny thing about that day was we were carrying classified documents for a meeting at the, at the State Department, and the last thing these Army officers wanted to do was to take them home, because you have to do a lot of paperwork every time you take classified documents and keep them in a non-secure facility. And so we went back into the building to try to return these documents, and our office was closed. Our office door had two locks on it, one that we all needed the four-button combination for, and one that has a dial like it's, that looks like a, a safe. And I was new, so I didn't have the combination. The colonel was new. He didn't have the combination. And the lieutenant colonel had the combination in his wallet, which was in his desk in the office. So we had to go to the National Military Command Center, which is this weird building within the building, and they dropped off the documents. And then I got a ride back to the subway and got home where I could watch the rest of the coverage that day. The lieutenant colonel went to help out with the recovery and the rescue efforts. So it was a, a pretty alarming day. For me, when I, when I recall on that time, 19 years ago, I was in my second year of undergrad at McGill. And it really cemented my career path from that moment on. I just wanted to keep studying international relations. It was quite immediate when you look at how the security environment was all of a sudden redefined and just the space that this global war on terror took. Now, I think the threat of terrorism is still present now, but I think it's fair to say that it's been somewhat displaced by the rise of great power competition in the minds of, of Americans. But it was really interesting to see from 2001 on how you know, the entire mindset shifted. It was also, I suppose, for alliances, an interesting time too. Uh, there was a, a show of alliance solidarity right after 9-11 with NATO allies invoking Article 5 for the first time in their history. In terms of commemoration events, I was just looking online and, and there was a small ceremony in Brussels at the Article 5 memorial in front of the new NATO headquarters. That's probably not been much used since its inauguration compared to, to normal times, but uh, certainly providing an assessment of NATO solidarity in 2020 is, is a bit of a tricky exercise. So I was, I was thinking about that a little bit. On the one hand, NATO has been in the news a lot because of Trump. I think back to how many media requests we've had, Steve, uh, on, on NATO. So we've pro probably been more popular than we would otherwise have been with Trump criticizing allies all the time. And of course, there's no such thing as, as bad publicity, they say. Uh, so I don't know. If, if NATO ultimately has, has benefited from this increased attention or not. On the other hand, a second term for Trump could mean the end of the alliance, or at least an American withdrawal from NATO. And I don't think at this point, this is an exaggerated statement. No, I think everybody's very worried about that. Whatever's happened thus far, Trump has had an election to have to think about. And if he wins again, then he probably doesn't have to think about an election ever again, one way or another. And so whatever constraints he had, he'll, be, he'll blow right by. And he's shown his hostility to the alliance again and again and again. So I think the Europeans don't have much to worry about with a, a second Trump term. The other significant event that was in the news is, is Afghanistan. This is a war that was started shortly after 9-11 when the Taliban regime failed to turn in bin Laden. But it's quite symbolic now that the Taliban were welcomed in Doha on September 12th for the beginning of the so-called intra-Afghan peace negotiations. So the timing of it is a little is a little funny with, with the delegations arriving really on September 11th in the country and, and beginning the talks that very weekend. Not only that, but the, the other timing of events is the regular Turkey-Greece spat. You've been following this more closely than I. What's going on these days with Turkey and Greece, which has always been a, a challenge for NATO? Well, what's at stake this time is a territorial dispute between Greece and Turkey, but 
also involving other states in the eastern Mediterranean region over hydrocarbon exploration rights. Things have not really calmed down since two frigates collided on, on August 12th. So again, uh, between Greece and, and Turkey and tensions have just been mounting. And so I suppose as, as good Alliance scholar, we, we have to ask ourselves, is a limited conflict between the two countries possible? Or should we trust the good scholarship on security communities that tells us that disputes between close allies are manageable because there's always this expectation on both sides that there will be a peaceful resolution to the disputes. Greece and Turkey have been members since the 50s of, of NATO, yeah. and they've overcome several disagreements and, and disputes and crises in the past, in the 70s, 80s, 90s. So maybe if we look at this from a historical perspective, it does not look as bad. And then NATO, despite having a fairly crowded agenda, can continue to provide such a forum for the resolution of tensions between allies. Even experts might disagree. NATO experts might disagree. I was looking a little bit at, at different European websites over the weekend to see what different NATO experts were saying on the topic. And, and a lot of them emphasized the fact that NATO is a, a collective defense organization and therefore, you know, doesn't really have a role to play in acting as a mediator to these uh, uh, disputes and resolving diplomatic tensions in this way, but I sort of disagree with that. I, th I think back to NATO's foundational treaty, and, and we've talked on this podcast about Article 4 and Article 5 in the past, but in the Washington Treaty, you look at Article 1 and you see that there is this commitment to settle any international disputes uh, in which allies might be involved peacefully and to refrain from the threat or use of force. So I think it's in NATO's DNA to provide that forum for consultation when these disputes arise between allies and then you know have these, these disputes mediated and resolved in a, in a peaceful fashion. But to me, the other point in this whole thing is that this crisis not only only underscores the importance of NATO, but it underscores or maybe highlights the absence of, of the U.S. I don't think the U.S. right now can or wants to play a role in this dispute. And it's just a recurring theme that we've been discussing, Steve, whether we look at Belarus or whether we look at Turkey or whether we look at the Middle East, it seems that the United States is not willing to play that key diplomatic role in resolving conflict in different regions. And so uh, the burden is, is left to others. Yeah. I think you put it really well that the challenge here is that the Greeks and the Turks have been a conf you know have these conflicts over the years. This, the current issue is not nearly as bad as you know the Cyprus dispute, which obviously involved more the UN than NATO. But there's room for U.S. leadership here, and it's in that vacuum is, is not really being filled. In some places in the world, the vacuum is being filled by the Chinese, like at the WHO, for instance. But with this issue, it's really very much within the U.S. ballpark. It's the American job to help smooth this out, and they're just not playing a role. And this is going to be a problem and it's not going to be a magical solution will happen if Biden gets elected because Biden's got to rebuild capacity. The U.S. State Department has been gutted over the past four years. There's many offices within DOD that deal with the, this part of the world that are also partly empty. So it's going to require a lot of work to catch up on these things. And meanwhile, the folks in Greece and Turkey have their own calendars. They can't wait for January. Nobody's waiting for January, they, they, not just because of the uncertainty about who might win the election, but because people have their own electoral calendars, their own political calendars in their own countries. And so they, can't, they just can't sit around waiting for things to change in the United States. Canada might have an election this fall before the American election. And if that happens, you know, 
people can't just vote based on, well, maybe Biden will win, so that will change the uh, mm-hmm. trade posture and all the rest. Uh, they, people just can't wait. So the uncertainty about the United States is, is just to create lots of uncertainty and challenges everywhere else. And that's going to be a problem. That there's a lot of unnecessary conflict in the world because of this uncertainty. I'm teaching a class on international relations theory, and one of the central themes in international relations theory is uncertainty is bad. Whether you're a realist or a liberal or constructivist or whatever theory that you use, uncertainty creates problems and it can lead to small things becoming worse problems because you don't know what's going to happen and you overreact or you underreact. And the reason why there wasn't much conflict in the Western world from 1945 to the 2014 or so is because the United States helped to guarantee the security of all the allies. So nobody really got too worried and too uncertain about their future. And Trump has raised all kinds of uncertainties about the American commitment to come to people's defense and just to, re- just to play a role of resolving disputes. Mm-hmm. And, and there's uncertainty in, in the short term as well. And this is what NATO has stepped up to help resolve. So since early September, Greece and Turkey have agreed to technical talks at NATO with that goal in mind, trying to eliminate uncertainty from the types of day-to-day interactions that might quickly escalate into a full-blown conflict. So if the primary objective is deconfliction, uh, when you look at these technical talks, they're looking at putting measures in place to reduce the risk of incidents, further escalating tensions between the two countries and stuff like diplomatic hotlines or certain commitments to observe said distances between both countries, aircraft and ships. But these talks are still ongoing, so there's not a ton of detail out there that's available. But I assume that in the coming days, we'll see more clearly in terms of whether these technical talks were successful or not. I think at least Greece and Turkey agreeing to these talks is a step in the right direction. And uh, fingers crossed that uh, there are no more... uh, further incidents uh, between both navies or, or, or ships from both countries. Yeah, I think that you're right there, which is, is that the talking is a good thing. And whether they make a lot of progress or not, it's better to be talking or not talking can lead to a relaxation of tension. So NATO play a role here is very important. Speaking of that part of the world, we got a question from one of our listeners asking, should Canada intervene in Belarus? What's your call on this? Well, the protests have been going on for more than a month now, if I'm, if I'm recalling correctly. And, and there's certainly no signs of, of slowing down. In a sense, one can argue that Canada already has intervened, at least on the political level. Uh, the Minister Champagne has, has called the elections fraudulent and refused to recognize its, its results. But I suspect that Canada's position or its involvement will very much follow the European lead. Canada can continue to encourage Belarus to hold new elections. And I, I think that in the statement that Champagne had put out, Canada was recommending that additional steps be taken. So, for instance, maybe having the OSCE conduct a thorough investigation of what happened and so on. But if Lukashenko refused to talk to Germany and is relying wholly on Putin to resolve the situation, I doubt Canada would be welcomed as a mediator somehow or would have any role to play. Do you think Canada has a role to play here? And, and you know, de- defining intervention quite broadly from political intervention to very unlikely military intervention. <laughs> Yeah, I think you captured it quite well. I don't think Canada has much of a role in this. Canada is a middle power, as they say. It does not have the ability to extend itself too far and does not have that much heft in places that are beyond its immediate interests. And Canada is already involved in Ukraine because of the Ukrainian Canadian population and because of what's happening in Ukraine. But we don't have much more spare capacity or spare power to put into the Belarus issue. I think supporting democratization and supporting democracy is a good thing. And Canada should follow a principled 
stance, but it's a European problem and Canada makes sense to back the European efforts rather than try to have an independent effort. There are some issues where it makes sense for Canada to provide, you know, its own offices for negotiations, but given Canada's role in Ukraine, I don't and given the Russian role in Belarus, I don't think that Canada would be seen as, as a neutral arbiter between the two, between Belarus and its opposition, or between Belarus and Russia. So it doesn't make sense for Canada to do too much more here than what it already has done. I think what it's done thus far has been appropriate. But one of the basic realities of international relations is to recognize what you can and cannot do. And I don't think this is a place where Canada can do much more. So before we move on to the next segment, I'd like to have us answer a question from Melissa Milley. She's one of our listeners. She asked, uh, I'm just wondering if we have if we have other good recommendations for serving members to stay relevant in policy, academia, world events. I've enjoyed your podcast so far, so I'm just looking for other avenues to get good information. So Stephanie, where do you get your information from? Well, it's funny because I'm a little old school. I still get lots of stuff delivered to my home and read them in hard copy. <laughs> and I'll ask you this in a second, but I get foreign affairs at home, foreign policy, the New York Times Sunday edition, and the Globe and Mail uh, every other day of the week, plus The Economist. So I just lay this all out on my table and just read it while drinking coffee. And so I think I've got old school habits when it comes to getting my information. Obviously, all of these outlets that I just mentioned have good online platforms too. In addition to, to those I would recommend, and I'm sure you'll do the same, but the Bombshell podcast, big fan of that one. And then primarily print content or written content. I still think that Canada has has a lot of options in terms of uh, security and defense analysis. You have the CDA Institute, the CGAI, kind of the two leading think tanks, I suppose, in, in this realm. And then you have the publications produced by the Minds Networks. There are six in total now. So if, if you peruse their various websites. They're putting out short policy-focused pieces that are freely accessible. Another good one is is policy options as well. And of course, the CDSN, which has all kinds of, of outputs, uh, including, including this podcast, but not limited to uh, this podcast. Steve, do you still get stuff delivered to your home or do you consume all of your security and defense analysis online? I get the Ottawa Citizen at home, but everything else I get is online. So you've mentioned a bunch of them. So in addition to ones that you've mentioned, I would also recommend Thank You for Your Service podcast if you're interested mm-hmm. in civil military relations. And that's from the War on the Rocks website, which is an American-based uh, website that has a lot of military stuff, a lot of defense stuff. I think one of the best places to get smart analyses about international relations and comparative politics is the Monkey Cage. The Monkey Cage is a blog attached to the Washington Post where and run by political scientists who basically themselves and guests uh, will post taking the latest and best in social science and applying it to events around the world. Or when an event around the world happens, they end up getting submissions trying to explain them from those who've been studying it. So I think the monkey cage is a really good, great outlet for that. What I'm hoping to see in the near future is Open Canada returning. Open Canada is a great portal for all kinds of international relations stuff written by Canadian. And it was very active for quite some time. And then it went it went into a small coma for a while. But the Canadian International Council has, has re-energized it. So we should be seeing it do more interesting stuff in the months ahead. You and I both have written for them in the past. And I look forward to writing for them in the future. I think that, that covers it. I would also say as much as crap that Twitter gets, much criticism Twitter gets, I think that if you find people, journalists, experts, actors, academics, who are interested in following them, that's the way. I get a lot of my news is not the fake news stuff, but the real news stuff. I I find people who are really sharp on things and they'll post both in their own little tweets what they think, but they'll also have links to really useful stories. So that's 
where I get most of my news these days, although you have to be a careful consumer given that there's also a lot of trash on Twitter. Right. And we should probably also mention that in addition to this podcast, there's going to be a new sister podcast. I know we briefly mentioned it during our last episode, but now I think we can make a more precise announcement. It will be called Conseil de Sécurité, co-hosted by Thomas Junot and Sarah Miriam Martin-Brulé. So this will be a joint initiative between the CDSN and the Network for Strategic Analysis. It will also cover security and, de and defense topics, but in French, and it's scheduled to launch at the end of the month. So this is a, a recommendation for something to tune into a little bit later, but uh, they have lots of exciting stuff in store for us. In fact, their first interview is going to be with somebody who has a lot more power and profile than I think anybody we've interviewed thus far. So they're, they're going to have to a great start. Yes, we won't steal their thunder and let them reveal who that first guest is. It's been great to talk to you, Stephanie. I guess we'll, what we'll do next is we'll have Lieutenant Commander Ryan Bell be our emerging scholar. He's a Naval Warfare Officer who was an MA candidate at the Canadian Forces College and was a one of uh, the winners of a competition of the best MA project. And then we'll go to Sam Jackson, who not the Sam Jackson, the actor, unfortunately, but Sam Jackson, the assistant professor in the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security and Cybersecurity at the University of Albany. He's done a lot of work on extremism. And that's one of the reactions I had to 9-11 was that the real threat these days in North America is not Islamist extremism, but white supremacist extremism, far-right extremism. And so that's what Sam Jackson will be speaking to us about. Great. I look forward to hearing both these interviews. And then, as usual, we'll have your R&R segment at the very end. Yes, I have a, a few recommendations to make, as always. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Steph. Have a good couple of weeks. Talk to you soon, Steve. My name is uh, Lieutenant Commander Ryan Bell, and uh, I'm a Naval Warfare Officer in the Royal Canadian Navy. For the last year, I've been completing the uh, Joint Command and Staff Program at the uh, Canadian Forces College in Toronto. And as part of this, I wrote a, uh, my directed research paper on uh, maritime defense diplomacy. And for that, I was awarded the uh, British General George Bell Medal uh, for, uh, for writing. It was, uh, my paper was selected as the, uh, the best submission uh, of the, uh, the class for 2019-2020. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about that award-winning paper. What were, you, uh, what were you trying to understand and what did you figure out? Sure, yeah. Before I, I went to um, the Canadian Forces College, I was working in the Naval Staff in Ottawa, and I was helping run um, the international relations cell of the, the, the RCN staff. So my area was Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, and so I was focusing on, on how we interacted with countries in those regions, um, the, uh, the connections, the ties we had with them, and the operations that we used ships for in those regions. Throughout the course of, of doing that for almost three years, I came up with a, a wide variety of kind of questions internally as to how this could be done better and how we could create a, a positive effect for the presence of warships in regions where they 
So, I mean, warships are inherently full things, uh, more flexible, in, in my opinion, than, than almost any other piece of military kit, because, of course, they are self-supporting and they, they travel globally on, on a daily basis. The RCN has ships deployed 365 days a year. As a, a fact of this, they enter the waters of, of nations, they conduct port visits, and uh, they interact with a wide variety of nations that Canada has uh, its interest with. And uh, so I wanted to see uh, what I could learn about how we could best use Canada's naval fleet to support government objectives and really um, get the most from our international sailing program. I proposed to uh, do my director research project on maritime defense diplomacy. And what was the biggest surprise along the way? I think the, the biggest surprise is that we're in a pretty similar spot to a lot of our, our partner nations in that we've really advanced uh, how we do defense diplomacy in general and maritime defense diplomacy specifically over the last several years. And uh, the United Kingdom has done uh, the same thing. Uh, they they went through a huge overhaul of their policy structure and how they utilize their, their army, the Navy and the Air Force to better make use of defense diplomacy. So a lot of the things that they were doing were things that, that we had been doing. So the, uh, the paper really broke down into into three sections, um, mm-hmm. principles, policy, and practice. So the principle section was just the, ac- the academic discourse, but the, the second part, the, the policy, re- revolved a lot about uh, looking at the process that the, uh, the United Kingdom had been through the last several years, creating a formal structure for the defense diplomacy program, and then seeing how that compares to the Canadian policy and, and structure uh, for uh, conducting defense diplomacy, and then coming up with some, some recommendations on how the, the whole structure of Department of National Defense and, and Canadian government policy could be um, could be tweaked in order to uh, to assist in uh, using these assets uh, to better objectives uh, from wider government departments beyond uh, simply just defense related uh, ideas. And then the, the third part of that, uh, the practice part, is I, I looked largely at an, an operation we commenced about two years ago now, Operation Projection, which is military forward presence operation for the Canadian Air Forces. So right now, the um, majority of Operation Projections involve Royal Canadian Navy ships. However, the uh, Royal Canadian Air Force also uh, utilizes Operation Projection for um, some presence-based operations in the Pacific with their uh, maritime patrol aircraft. And the idea is that we deploy warships and military assets to these regions in order to build connections to be pre-positioned in case there is a need to create a, an awareness of Canadian capability and to allow us to be able to operate more seamlessly with regional partners if, uh, if things were to happen. And we, we saw the... Um, the early benefits of that in 2016, HMCS Vancouver was deployed to the uh, Indo-Asia-Pacific region and the um, the Christchurch, uh, New Zealand earthquake happened. And so HMCS Vancouver was, was about two or three days sail north of there with some American and Australian warships conducting an exercise. And they immediately were able to shift focus, steam down at max speed to New Zealand and utilize the ship's helicopters and, and supplies to provide immediate relief in, uh, in the affected areas. And so that, that kind of uh, the timeliness of that response, but also the ability for uh, us to work so seamlessly with regional partners is directly as a result of these, uh, these missions, which are, are basically maritime defense diplomacy uh, operations. I use that to 
look at how we, we created operation projection and the processes we use in operation projection and see how we can integrate some of that into the wider RSTN sailing program. Because even there are warships sailing around the world for a variety of reasons, uh, training exercises, uh, international events, and, and, and stuff like that. And so as these ships uh, transit places, there are opportunities to, to further the um, objectives of the, you know, the Department of Foreign Affairs or um, industrial development or a wide variety of government objectives through things such as simple as uh, the hosting of cocktail parties for embassy mm -hmm. officials in ports in, in Africa, in West Africa, which is done in Operation Projection Africa, or uh, doing community visits in Europe and in uh, the Asia-Pacific region when we pull into port and uh, members of the ship's company go ashore and volunteer at orphanages and, and conduct uh, maintenance and stuff at schools in order to uh, raise the, uh, the local view of of Canada and, and Canadians in, in that uh, that area. Well, that sounds uh, really exciting. I wish you luck with your French. I'm sure your French will ultimately be much better than mine. Thank you for coming <laughs> to Battle Rhythm today, speaking with us about your your paper, your your studies at the Canadian Forces College. We, we value the Canadian Forces College as a as a key partner in the Canadian Defense and Security Network, and it's nice to meet the next generation of those folks who are going to be sailing our our ships. So I'm sure not only being an executive officer, but I'm sure you aspire to to captain your own frigate someday. So thank you, Ryan, for being on uh, Battle Rhythm. Thanks a lot for having me. I am with Sam Jackson, who is an assistant professor in the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity at the State University of New York at Albany. Professor Jackson works on on political extremism and conflict, particularly right-wing activity in the United States and groups that leverage online platforms. Thank you for being on Battle Rhythm, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I want to start with your research focus on the Patriot or militia movement in the United States. I know there's going to be a lot of curiosity about that. Since we have a primarily Canadian audience, can you give us the lay of the land or the who's who of this movement, as it were? Sure. So the folks that I study in the what I call the Patriot Militia Movement, they first emerged in the 1990s. A lot of scholars identify 1994 as the year that these movements emerged. And at least in their first incarnation, they were paramilitary groups that some of us might like to call them LARPers, live action role playing, being in the military, even though they aren't a military organization. Um, and a lot of these groups would perceive threats coming from the U.S. federal government, from various state governments, and they would encourage Americans to join a local militia group to train to prepare for an eventual conflict with the government. Towards the end of the 90s, those groups really started to shrink, I guess, partially because of some blowback related to the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, Timothy McVeigh used a truck bomb to destroy the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. And for a while after that bombing, there was speculation that he was involved in militia organizations. As it turned out, his ties with militia organizations were pretty tenuous at most. But the, the initial discussions about p potential connections that he had led to a lot of negative attention for militia groups. Combine that with a few predictions of major problems, especially around Y2K, that those predictions didn't come to fruition. The Patriot Militia Movement in the 90s sort of 
waned quite a bit. And then, of course, in 2001, we had um, Al-Qaeda and the September 11th attacks in um, New York and Washington, D.C. And all of those things sort of combined to orient people who would have been in the Patriot Militia Movement to focus their perceptions of threats around foreign threats, especially Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorist organizations. So then fast forward to 2008, and a few things in American politics sort of combined to set the stage for a resurgence of the Patriot Militia Movement. The first was some of the financial crisis stuff around 2008 that also led to the emergence of the Tea Party in the U.S., as well as the election of Barack Obama as both a liberal candidate as well as the first African-American to become president. After 2008, some watchdog organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League noticed a dramatic increase in the number of groups affiliated with the Patriot Militia Movement over the next few years. Some of the big players in this most recent incarnation are the Oath Keepers, a group in the U.S. that primarily target current and former military and law enforcement to recruit into their group, and the so-called Three Percenters Movement, which is a little bit more diffuse and more or less argues that if 3% of Americans are willing to fight back against a tyrannical American government, then they can win back some of their liberties that have been threatened or even even lost in the recent years. Okay, so these groups view themselves as patriots working to bring down a tyrannical government, including through the use of violence. Can you explain how these groups have used different strategies from extremist rhetoric to violent tactics? These groups kind of face a little bit of a, a challenge in that they describe themselves as patriots, but they engage in this identity work that is very much centered around violence of different sorts. Groups like the Oath Keepers and, and different three percenters groups, they need to find a way to convince other Americans that the threats that these people in the Patriot Militia Movement see are real threats and that using violence, although um, they would primarily frame it as defensive violence, would be an appropriate response to these threats. So I'm in the final stages of working on a, a book looking at how the Oath Keepers in particular talk about core American political values and moments from American history in order to justify their worldview, to explain the threats that they see and to provide them with models for how to respond to those threats. So one of the interesting things about the particular type of extremism that the Patriot Militia Movement is their use of mainstream American history, things that are familiar to, to many Americans in some way or another, in order to justify their goals and behavior that really aren't so mainstream, that are much less common. So the rhetoric side of things is really interesting. It's this sort of balancing act between their radical goals and behavior and the mainstream history. And that sort of plays into the types of actions that they take. The contemporary Patriot Militia Movement in particular has been really concerned with maintaining its reputation. So these organizations will often get involved in sort of community service type practices. There was one small chapter in a rural county in Oregon that built some playgrounds and installed wheelchair ramps for um, mobility impaired people at their homes. And they do this because it, it sort of aligns with their understanding of patriotism and being good upstanding members of their community. But but then a few days later, they might strap on their assault rifle to their tacti-cool vest, uh, like a camouflage vest that looks straight out of Call of Duty, and go walk around urban streets or conduct 
security operations in rural areas while they're heavily armed and, and sort of daring the, the federal government or in some cases state governments to come and take action that would lead to a firefight. And this balancing act between these things that seem so mainstream and seem like attempts at building respectability with action that is just so uncommon and so beyond the pale for what is considered conventional, acceptable political activism in the U.S. is just really, really fascinating to me. And I assume that one of the rhetorical devices that is used, too, is the conspiracy theories. I mean, I, I would see that as quite uh, intuitive for these groups. And my question is, considering the various tactics that you've just shared with us, when do conspiracy theories count as a manifestation of extremism? Interesting question. So from the sort of the other end of that question, it is definitely true that conspiracy theories are really, really common within the Patriot Militia Movement. In the 90s, it was conspiracy theories about Y2K and about black helicopters and foreign troops coming into the U.S. Um, and in the 2000s, it was foreign troops coming into the U.S. and FEMA and Agenda 21, which is this non-binding sustainable development plan driven by the United Nations. This question of when conspiracy theories become extremism is a really tricky one because there are some prominent conspiracy theories that are out there now that I would not be inclined to call extremism, at least at first blush. I'm thinking of mm -hmm. things around vaccines or misinformation about climate change or any of these sorts of things that typically posit some sort of hidden actor who is promoting this alleged misinformation for some nefarious purpose. But there are also obvious overlaps. The Patriot Militia Movement, for example, not a big fan of modern medicine in a lot of ways. They spend a lot of time talking about how Americans should be prepared to be sort of independent in terms of medical care. I listened to these videos with preppers where they talked about one of the most valuable things you can do for when uh, Teotihuacan comes. Teotihuacan is an acronym for the end of the world as we know it. One of the most valuable things you can do is get yourself colloidal copper and silver because colloidal copper and silver have antibacterial properties. And if you combine that with an autoclave, which you can use to sterilize cotton, then you can make your own sterile antibacterial bandages for when you're engaged in your inevitable firefights with criminals or the government or whatever. So if I come back to your question, I guess I would say that conspiracy theories aren't necessarily extremism. And I, I don't know if there's a, a point at which you could say that a conspiracy theory becomes extremist, but they are important in a lot of forms of extremism. That's very interesting. And so when we think of just the range of tactics that are used and some, you know, are sort of normalized through various social media platforms and some are more securitized and militarized in appearance. I'm wondering how the tactics of these groups that you study might differ from other types of groups. And I'm thinking here, uh, extremist groups in particular. How about terrorist organizations? So are those different tactics or are they quite similar from the types of strategies used more broadly if we looked at the broader spectrum of extremist groups? This one is a place where the concepts that a lot of us in the extremism and terrorism studies space become difficult and confused and murky, and it's hard to know what to use. Generally speaking, I think of extremism and terrorism as related concepts, but by no means as synonyms. And one of the ways that they're different 
is the extremists that I study would rarely, if ever, look to terrorize a civilian population. The only sense in which we might call them terrorists in the, in the sense of using political violence to achieve a political motive through means of inducing terror would be their threats of violence against government officials, which, at least with a lot of definitions of terrorism, any action taken against a government automatically doesn't qualify as terrorism. But I guess a, a more satisfying way to answer your question is that the groups that I study see themselves as upstanding members of the American community, however they understand that community to exist. They go to extreme lengths to distinguish themselves from terrorists and to make sure that their action doesn't resemble terrorism. I often say that groups in the Patriot Militia Movement walk along the edge of violence. They're not clearly violent, but they're also definitely not nonviolent. It seems strange to me that you would call anyone who is willing to be heavily armed walking through American streets as nonviolent. That just doesn't seem to make sense. Mm -hmm. But these groups almost never call for proactive violence. And the way that they would situate almost all of their violence is we never fire first. We put ourselves in positions to respond when the government is violent, but we will never take action that is directly violent. And part of that, of course, is, is the strategic framing of the group wanting to build legitimacy for themselves. But in a certain sense, they kind of mean it in a way that like if we, if if ISIS were to say we're using defensive violence to defend the Muslim community worldwide and, and our caliphate, we would say, yeah, yeah, whatever, that's manipulating language. The Patriot Militia Movement uses defensive violence in a much more concrete and sort of compressed time frame. So defensive violence for them wouldn't mean, okay, the government's taken action and then the Patriot Militia Movement goes out a month later and takes retaliatory action as a defensive measure. The defensive violence that the Patriot Militia Movement engages in primarily, not exclusively by any means, would be much more in the context of we're going to grab our firearms and go out to Clive and Bundy's ranch, and we're going to be there to shoot back if federal agents start shooting. Something that you just said has stuck with me and prompted another question, and it's this exercise of building legitimacy that these groups are, are pursuing. And presumably, with the growth of social media, there has been a new opportunity for these groups to gain new audiences and to work in new ways at building legitimacy. Is this something that you've noticed when you think back on the evolution of these groups? Yeah, for sure. Now, Seamus Hughes at George Washington's program on extremism wrote this sort of, I guess, satirical might be the right word, piece for, I think, for Lawfare or, or War on the Rocks or another blog like that, sort of satirically takes a lot of the rhetoric that's used around terrorism and social media, but replaces social media with the fax machine. And it, his serious point is that there are other communication technologies that existed before social media and the internet that were also crucially important for different extremist and terrorist organizations. For the Patriot Militia Movement in the 90s, it was these hotlines that you could call, you could dial into, and there would be sort of a leader on the other end of the phone sort of making a speech via hotline. There would be like VHS tape distribution networks, all of these sorts of things. But what's new about social media is it's much easier for someone to accidentally stumble across extremist rhetoric, extremist groups, extremist propaganda, if you like. I think that is perhaps the newest thing about social media, it, the ability for people to incidentally find things. So for the Mark Zuckerbergs of this world, would you have any specific recommendations or might you have advice on how to tackle 
extremist messages and recruitment efforts based on your research? Yeah, there are a few things that I would recommend. The The first recommendation that I have, and I don't know that anyone, including myself, actually knows what to do with this, but I would want social media companies to be bold and transparent in deciding that they're going to not allow certain types of content. A couple of months ago, news came out that Pinterest was not allowing, I believe it was anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. They just decided we as a private company have the right to say that certain types of content is not welcome on our platform. And we are saying that anti-vaccine conspiracy theories not welcome on our platform. I would love for Facebook to decide that Islamophobia, not acceptable in any form on our platform. uh, We're going to remove all of that content. And if you continually try to post it, you're going to get suspended and eventually banned from our platform as well. Facebook has started to do things. They have tried lots of things. Pick on Facebook since they're the biggest social media platform right now. The, The problem with some of their approaches is almost a political problem. Facebook in the past has been accused of political bias in a number of different ways. And their response is always to try to demonstrate that they don't have political bias. And What that means in the context of extremism is they end up defining it so narrowly and have their definitions so focused on calls to violence or dehumanization that it doesn't capture the full spectrum of what is extremism and what contributes to extremism, which means that a lot of content that sort of lives on the extremism spectrum remains on Facebook. And Facebook doesn't necessarily even try to address it because of how they define sensitive content or or content that they're going to remove. So the biggest thing that I would like to see social media companies do is just be bold and transparent and concrete about not allowing certain types of content that they deem to be harmful. Something that often is brought up in the context of conversations around extremist content online is freedom of speech. To be frank, I think that that is a, what's, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of my logical fallacies here. Maybe a red herring, <laughs> maybe something mm-hmm. else. It's not really relevant. Private companies have no legal obligations to not discriminate on the basis of content of speech and to, private companies can make decisions about what types of content they will and will not allow. And I think that we all are okay with that. We're okay with Facebook saying, I don't know, violent pornography, not okay on our platform. I think there are probably very few of us who would say that Facebook does not have the right to remove that type of content. Some people would argue that Facebook doesn't have the right to censor political content, but there is, to my knowledge, no legal requirement that these companies allow that type of content. Some countries have actually gone the other way and have made it illegal for social media companies to not take down extremist content. Of course, this complicates things because each country has different legal interpretations of what extremism is or just no legal interpretation of what extremism is. So I don't want to say that the social media companies should be taking more action and that that action is relatively easy, but there are things that they could do and they should be doing more than they are doing. And finally, just as a last question, Sam, and I hate to take you there, but it is an election year in the U.S., so I have to ask, how do you think the Patriot or Militia movement might respond to a future electoral loss by Donald Trump? Yeah, this is the great big question, isn't it? (laughs) To be honest, this is something that has sort of worried me in the back of my brain ever since Trump became a viable candidate in the 2016 U.S. presidential election cycle. It took a little while, but the Patriot Militia Movement eventually became um, pretty vocal supporters of Donald Trump. 
I'm not even going to try to unpack why because it doesn't entirely make sense based on the things that the, the movement says that they care about, that they would support him. Regardless, they support him. They also talk about being willing to use violence and they see conspiracy theories left and right that posit that there's some sort of hidden actor working to subvert the good of America for, for their own selfish purposes. And I think there's a real chance that some in the movement will see any sort of means by which Trump leaves the presidency, whether it, if he had been um, convicted by the Senate after being impeached, if he were to resign, if he were to lose the general election, if he were to have a heart attack and, and pass away, it seems very possible that portions of the Patriot Militia Movement would interpret any of those things not as being true on their face or being what they seem to be on their face, but as being overt manifestations of some covert plot against real Americans and real American values. And it's possible that they could respond with violence, especially under circumstances of impeachment or losing elections. Um, I mean, the Patriot Militia Movement in 2016 was in the days and, and weeks and hours um, leading up to the election when, the, uh, when Trump's victory was announced. They were supporting this idea that pro-Clinton forces were going to rig the election to make sure that she won. They viewed Clinton as a particularly nefarious person for a whole bunch of reasons, but now they have embraced Trump. And I worry that they will see anything that takes Trump out of power as a sign of some sort of nefarious covert action um, taken to harm America. Well, that's deeply unsettling. <laughs> this particular uh, point on the on the election, but you know, really, the broader discussion on the Patriot Militia movement, as fascinating as it is, it's sort of equally unsettling and, and worrying. But certainly, uh, the analytical depth that you bring to the topics is a real privilege to to hear. So I've learned a lot, and I thank you for that. You have a book. Can you tell us a bit uh, about that project before we we part ways? Sure. The title is The Oath Keepers, Patriotism and the Edge of Violence in a Right-Wing Anti-Government Group. It's a, a book that I have intentionally written to be a very approachable introduction to how anti-government extremists in the U.S. refer to mainstream American history and ideas to justify their goals to their supporters, to provide their supporters with models for how they should act in response to the, the threats they perceive, and to win support from a wider set of Americans who might not at first blush be inclined to support extremism in this particular form. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sam Jackson. It's been a pleasure to have you on Battle Rhythm. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. are in our segment I've got a book and two TV series. The book is Stories from the Field. It's actually an academic book but not really. It's a book of, that uh, one of my former students edited or Zekali along with Peter Krause and it's about what people have learned while doing field work and so I actually have a, a small chapter in here where I talk about how to do research while being linguistically lame and so it's talking to people how to do work in a dangerous place, how to uh, cook with rebels, um, how to do all kinds of different things while doing field work. And while we can't do field work right now, thanks to the pandemic, I found this book to be really entertaining as well as educational. 
So even if you're not an aspiring social scientist, I think it's a good read. And if you are an aspiring social scientist and you're planning on actually getting out of your office and going someplace to talk to people, I think this is a really fundamental book to read, just to get an idea of how to do this stuff. Not, not the methodology and not about testing hypotheses and all the rest, but how do you actually do field work? I had this book when I was in grad school. The second thing is The Boys Have Returned to Amazon. The Boys is a superhero show where the good guys are actually the folks fighting the superheroes because the superheroes in this world are mostly awful and they're being pumped up by a corporation to, rate, to make money. Uh, so they're doing all kinds of bad things. The show is very violent and has, has things that are sometimes wildly inappropriate, but it's a really interesting show to watch to get a very different perspective on the impact superheroes might make if they are not so careful with their great responsibility. The third is I'm in between Star Wars shows because I finished watching Star Wars Rebels while I was exercising. And so I've been watching The Making of the Mandalorian, which is a series, a short mini-series on the Disney Plus channel, where they go through each aspect from the special effects to the practical effects to the music. And it's really fascinating to see these people talk about their art. You have the directors talking, because there were several different directors of the show, talking to each other about what they learned from each other, how they had to prepare for this unique experience because they use new technologies. And then they, they had an episode about the scores. So they, they, they showed the musician that did most of the music behind it. And it's just fascinating to see how this complex group of arts and skills and crafts come together to make a show that just rocks. And given that The Mandalorian had the trailer drop today while we were taping this and it's coming out at the end of October, this is a good way to get enthused for a new season for the second season of The Mandalorian. Have a good week, be careful, wear your masks, wash your hands, and be well. Talk to you soon. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to cdsn.rcds.outlook.com. Thank you.